used to burn calories by playing sports, and now I don't have to play sports anymore at all. Because I can burn all the calories I want just chasing the boys around all day in the house. But, with all the running and playing, it often leads to accidents, which often lead to injury. Or supposed accidents that actually aren't accidents at all. For example, I will hear responses like this. Dad, I didn't know that jumping off the top bunk onto Joby, which is our two-year-old, would hurt him. Or Dad, I told Luke to duck when I swung the bat at his head. Or Dad, I was Spider-Man and Silas was the bad guy. He was the villain. And I had to protect the city from the bad guy, of course, so I had to beat up Silas. Well, in those instances, after lovingly correcting, let me say it again, after lovingly correcting the guilty party for their violence or lack of thinking, I then, as a parent like many of you, go and comfort the injured party, the injured child. In those moments... We are empathetic towards our children's pain. We may pick them up or talk to them calmly and let them know that everything will be okay. We may kiss their bumps or bruises or put a band-aid on them or just hold them in our arms. As a parent, we naturally want to comfort our children in their suffering. And likewise, this morning in our verses, we see how Christ comforts the disciples. The way a parent comforts and cares for their own children. So let's open our Bibles to John 14, verses 18 through 26. That's John 14, verses 18 through 26. And I've entitled this message, Heaven, Gifts, and a Couple of Points. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, help us to really see how much you do love us and care for us. Help it to sink down deep in our hearts. Help us to be led by your spirit. Help us to be lights to this world that does not know you at all, Father. Forgive us of our many sins that we commit. Help us to walk in repentance for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Jesus starts in John, eight, or John 14, verse 18, by saying this. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus says this because he knows the disciples' hearts. He sees how vulnerable, how frightened they are knowing he is about to leave them. If you remember last week, Jesus tells them that he will give them a helper, the Holy Spirit, to guide them, to be with them when he goes. But today, Jesus goes on to say, the last, in the last part of verse 18, I will come to you. He will come back to his disciples, is what he was saying. Some interpret this to be an extension of Jesus continuing to remind the disciples of the Holy Spirit's revival, or his arrival, but... The language 
of saying, I will come to you, sounds like Jesus is personally coming to be with the disciples once again. And verse 19 makes this more apparent, more evident, as Jesus goes on to say, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live. You also will live. So Jesus says three things here. When he appears to his disciples, he will say this. He will see them. This will happen in a little while. He also says the world will not see him no more. And finally, he says that the disciples will see him. So when does this take place? When does this actually happen? Well, we know in a few days from now, Christ will be crucified. And then he will raise from the grave, which the world won't see. And the ones that see really don't understand what's going on. But we know that Jesus then reveals himself to his disciples. He goes to them again. As our text says, I will come to you. But the question worth asking is why did Jesus go to his disciples after the resurrection anyway? Well, we know that the disciples all turned their backs on Christ after the crucifixion. We know that that Peter denied him three times, right? And then Matthew 26 56 tells us. That all the disciples left him and fled. The question is why? What happened to cause them all to flee? What caused them all to turn their backs on the Messiah? On Christ? Well, the short answer is they misunderstood God's plan for Christ. They had more of the Jewish mindset of that Jesus would be a warrior Messiah. That he would bring his kingdom to this earth. And the Jewish people would rule the whole world. So when Christ was crucified, it wasn't in the disciples' playbook. It wasn't in their plans. They were horrified. They were scared. They were confused. They were upset. And Christ goes to them after his death and resurrection to show them that this was part of the plan from the beginning. This was the Father's plan. And finally, the disciples understand Christ is a Messiah. He's different than what they expected. And they go from fear to faith. They go from confusion to clarity. They go from worry into trust in Christ. I wonder if we see the extraordinary links Christ went to to comfort the disciples, to give the disciples clarity of who he was. Christ says, I will not leave you as orphans. But we have to realize that Jesus loves the disciples more than we can ever love or care for our own children. But this love is not only granted to the disciples but for all who turn to Christ in repentance and belief in him. Amen? And this leads to gift number one. Christ's love has been poured out on us generously. Gift number one says that Christ's love has been poured out on us generously. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We see that God gave his best. He sacrificed his own son for us. This love that God has poured out on us is explained 
even further in Ephesians 3.19. And it says this. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul prays that we know the depths of Christ's love. A love that goes far beyond what we can understand or imagine, he says. A love that is far beyond what our little minds can grasp. I wonder how often we are praying like Paul to grasp the riches, the depths of Christ's love for us. I mean, church, we are so loved by God that we can't even comprehend it. That's a lot of love, right? And this love Christ has for us means Christ goes to great lengths to show us we can have faith instead of fear. Christ's love gives us clarity instead of confusion. Christ's love opens our eyes to the reality of the truth. Christ's love brings us purpose instead of pointlessness. Christ's love transformed us from evil to being holy vessels for him. I wonder if we've even realized how loved we are by Christ Jesus this morning. We're so loved that the Father sacrificed his son for us and Christ willingly went to the cross because he loved us so much as well. Well, Let's go back to the end of verse 19, where Jesus is discussing and talking to the disciples, and he says this, because I live, you also will live, which leads to gift number two. We are given eternal life. Gift number two says that we are given eternal life. Because Christ lives, we also will live. This is specific to the disciples, but we know that the resurrection applies to us as well. We will raise from the dead because Christ raised from the dead. We will conquer death because Christ conquered death. Amen? That means we will be in heaven with Christ for the rest of eternity. And some of us may be thinking, wow. I mean, that sounds really great. We get to sit on clouds and play the harp with a bunch of angels all day. I mean, I don't even know if I like playing the harp, right? I must sadly say, this is some people's perspective of heaven. They have no idea what heaven will really be like. And yet Paul says this to us in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. That is where our true home is found. I wonder when we think of home, what comes to mind? When I think of home, I often think of familiarity. I mean, we know our home, we know what it looks like and how it feels. But I will tell you this, even I remember that when we were going to move into our home, before we moved into it, I already knew it. We studied the plans. We visited our lot daily. We talked about it. We daydreamed about what it was going to be like to live in this new home that we were building. We knew our home inside and out before it was technically our home. And we were familiar with all the rooms. We hung out many nights in the kitchen. We imagined the sunny days by the pool. We sat in the living room before the house had even been built. 
we were there. We dreamed about it. We anticipated the day we could move in. We knew our home. And similarly, we should have our minds on our eternal home. We should be excited. We should be getting prepared for it. We should have our bags packed and ready to go when God calls us home. Colossians 3.1 says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Paul here says to seek the things above. And this word here for seek could be translated as desire or search intently for. So we should be seeking, desiring, searching intently for our real home. I wonder how often we think about heaven. I wonder if we truly desire to go to our eternal home. You're just here for a short time and then eternity. Those of us in Christ will go to heaven as this will be our long-term home, our forever home, our never-ending or never-changing home, our eternal home. Randy Alcorn says this, We need to spend our lives cultivating our love for heaven. That's why we need to meditate on what scripture says about heaven. Read books, have Bible studies, teach classes and preach sermons on it. We need to teach our children about heaven when we are camping or driving or when we're at a museum or a sporting event or a theme park. We need to talk about what we see around us as signposts that remind us of heaven. Which leads to point number one. Heaven is for real. Point number one says that heaven is for real. Does heaven seem real to you this morning? What comes to mind when you think about heaven? Let's get a quick glimpse of heaven this morning. Let's start today by daydreaming about our real home. Scripture tells us that heaven is so brilliant and majestic that it is beyond what any eye can see or any ear can hear or what any heart could ever imagine. It's beyond our human comprehension. How is that for a start? Scripture puts heaven in terms that we can begin to imagine how glorious it is as Revelation describes heaven as a beautiful city adorned with costly gems, stones, and rare jewels. And these gems aren't just in special places. They are throughout heaven everywhere. The streets aren't solid concrete or blacktop, but gold. And I'm not talking about plated gold either. I'm talking about solid gold. I mean, heaven is better than Marco Island. I mean, can you get much better than that? Or we may also consider the fact that we will have new bodies Spiritual bodies, glorified bodies. I may be a little taller and a little thinner with my glorified body. But that's not the half of it. That's not even the half of it. 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44 gives us a glimpse into the resurrected body. Listen to this. What is sown is perishable. 
what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So our bodies, our new bodies, will be eternal. They will be glorified. And they have power. We're not exactly sure what this looks like, but I would guess it would be comparable to some sort of modern-day superhero. If our new bodies are like Christ, then we'll be able to eat and drink. And we also know that he could walk through walls and lock doors. It's going to be a neat body. We may consider the fact that heaven is a place of no mores either. I mean, there will be no more tears No more sorrows, no more suffering, no more pain, no more loss, no more fear, no more hopelessness, no more worries, no more sins, no more evil. And I could go on with the no mores, but I have a short time here. Instead of pains and suffering, heaven is where all our desires will be overflowing as we will be in the presence of God's glory for all eternity. Our real home, heaven, overflows with perpetual joyfulness, unending thankfulness, perfect love, unspeakable pleasure. Heaven is to experience pure goodness, depth of fellowship, ultimate powerful praise and worship of our God for all eternity. Amen? So another question is what makes heaven so great? What makes heaven, heaven? 1 John 3, 2 tells us, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will it be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Speaking of Christ, heaven is a place of overwhelming joy unspeakable pleasures and unabounding love because we will be face to face with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will be with him for all eternity. I wonder if we think about eternity. If we daydream about our real home. Are we talking about heaven with others? What about Christ? Are we excited to be with our Lord and Savior for all eternity? Well, let's go back to our passages where Jesus is still discussing with the disciples that they will leave, they will live, because he will live. And then Jesus says this in John 14, 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Let's stop here. Because this sounds familiar to what we heard last week in verse 15 where Jesus says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Jesus says the same thing, but he just reverses the order. He repeats himself, which means this is really important for us to hear. We need to really pay attention. And he says this. If you love me, you will follow, obey, keep my commandments. Which leads to point number two. Works are the fruit of our love for Christ. Works are the fruit of our love 
for Christ. This is key to understand that our obedience is the result of our love for Christ. I mean, Christ talked about this so often because it's easy to fall into two extremes. And both extremes are heresies. One extreme says this, I do good to get love for Christ. I do good to get love from Christ. This is known as legalism. Legalism says this, do good works to be approved by God. Do good works to be approved by God. I do works for God so he will love me. And when I don't do good works, well, guess what? His love runs out for me. He then disowns me. This is heresy because it focuses on self instead of God. Our salvation isn't based on our own good works, but on the finished work of Christ Jesus. Again, Jesus says we keep the commandments because we already do love God. We aren't trying to prove our love to him, but we already have it. That's why we obey him. We already have his approval. I wonder this morning if we are working to live for Christ because we're trying to gain God's approval. If we are, we are caught in the snare of legalism. The other extreme, when the pendulum swings in the opposite direction, we get another heresy that says, it doesn't matter how I live because grace covers everything. This is known as cheap grace. Cheap grace says this, Christ is Savior but not Lord. Cheap grace says that Christ is Savior but he's not my Lord. It's the idea that I believe in Christ to be saved but I am not willing to follow him. I'm not willing to submit to his lordship. It's saying I want to be saved on my own terms. It's Diedrich Bonhoeffer that coined the phrase cheap grace and he says this, cheap grace is preaching Forgiveness without requiring repentance. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Christ Jesus. And I'm afraid, church, this is very popular in our culture right now, in the Christian world. It's the idea that I can keep my pet sins. I can continue to enjoy my sin. I can continue to live in my sin and be a Christian at the same time. Jesus tells us very clearly in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says here that we have to deny self, which means we have to submit to Christ's will. And then he goes on to say that we have to take up our cross as the cross in Christ's day was used to put people to death, right? So Jesus is saying you have to die to self daily. You have to submit to Christ and turn from your sin. Amen? I wonder if some of us have addictions that we continue to practice. Maybe a secret sin that we have hidden from everyone else, and yet God sees it clearly, church. He sees it. He recognizes our hearts for what they are. Or maybe we're living with someone who's not our spouse and we tell ourselves it's okay because we're, we're trying to serve God in other ways, right? Church, when we live in these ways, we are practicing cheap grace. 
which means we are making a mockery of Christ Jesus. We are living a life of hypocrisy. I don't say this because I want to be harsh or mean, but just the opposite because I care. In my own life, personally, when I'm struggling with sin, I have the elders who have the same authority as I have to lovingly call me aside. We all need friendships that practice real accountability. This is what the body of Christ is supposed to do for each other. Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We get the picture of an animal caught in a trap. And they can't get out of the trap. They're stuck. They're caught. And when we're in sin, we're blinded to the sin that we're in. We need help. We need to love people enough to share God's word with them when they're in the situation. I could give various examples of this in my own life, but one was when Luke, our worship leader, was over my house. And my boys were unruly and acting out, and I reacted harshly to the boys by raising my voice to them. And after the night was over, Luke pulled me aside and told me he noticed that when the boys act out, instead of calmly dealing with them, I often lose my temper. And I must admit, it was embarrassing. I was a little taken back. Who likes to be called out, right? I didn't even realize I was losing my temper so much. But because of Luke's willingness to show me love, I am much more careful how I react to the boys. Although I must tell you, I still struggle with that. You can pray for me in how I discipline the children. But I pray that the Lord continues to help me train the children in the way of the Lord. Amen. This is the type of friendships we all need. Brothers and sisters in Christ who lovingly call us out for our own good, for our own benefit. If we are, that's the type of friendships we have. And if we're not that way towards one another in Christ, then we're really not real friends that the Bible talks about. But let's go back to John 14, 21. And we're on the second half of John 14, 21. But I'll read it in its entirety. And Jesus says this. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus says that those who love him, he will manifest himself to them. What does manifest here actually mean, though? Well, manifest means to make visible, to make clear. It is the same word that was used when Moses asked to see God and God manifested his glory to him. He revealed himself to Moses, which leads to gift number three. Gift number three says that we will have increased knowledge of Christ. Gift number three says that we will have increased knowledge of Christ. And again, that's for those who have turned from their sin, repented, and believe in Jesus. Someone may ask us to prove the existence of God. 
So they ask us, what is your evidence? What is your proof for the existence of God? And as believers, we use scripture to show them why, we need, why they need to put their hope in Christ, right? But at the end of the day, our faith goes much deeper than mere facts or head knowledge about God. I mean, think about it. We see Christ clearer today than yesterday because God has walked us through the fires of life. We held on to the promises of God through some of the most devastating and hard circumstances of our lives. And now Christ is more real to us than ever, right? So as we mature in our walk with Christ, as we get older, we see Christ a little clearer. Which might sound a little odd to some of us, considering the older we get, the harder it is for us to see, right? Our vision begins to go. I got to tell you a quick story about that. My wife and I went to a restaurant, and this is about my wife's vision. Went to a restaurant, and my wife said to me, don't look over there. Don't look over there. So, of course, what did I do? I looked over there, right? She says, don't look. It's Pastor Jack. So I looked anyway, and I was like, hon, I don't see Pastor Jack. She says, yeah, he's right over there. Look. And I'm like, hon, are you talking about the person in the red shirt? And she said, yes, that's Pastor Jack. I said, that's not Pastor Jack. She said, I'm, I'm telling you, it is Pastor Jack. I'm almost 100% positive. And I said, hon, that's a woman with short hair. I said, unless Pastor Jack has really changed, well, I think you may have the wrong person. I knew at that point we needed to check my wife's eyes. But I'm not really talking about our physical eyes as we get older, but I'm talking about our spiritual eyes. Our spiritual vision increases in clarity. Our spiritual eyes increase in vision, in depth. A spiritual vision increases in our understanding as we mature in Christ, as our knowledge grows, as we walk with Christ, right? And we see in our next passage that the disciples ask Christ, how is he going to manifest himself to them and not the rest of the world? Let's look real quick here. Um, John 14, 22. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas, Ask, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the whole world? So Judas, not Judas Iscariot, asked Jesus, how is it that you are going to reveal yourself to us, the disciples, and not the rest of the world? Because in Judas' mind, he is thinking of Jesus being, again, the warrior Messiah who is going to conquer the world, who's going to make his kingdom on this earth. So to Judas... Obviously, Jesus is going to be known to everybody, not just the disciples. And Jesus responds this way. Listen to him. Jesus answered him, Judas, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not my own, but the Father's who sent me. So Jesus says, those who love me, who keep my commandments, that will be the one who knows me, Judas. In other words, the one who loves me is the one I will manifest or reveal myself to. And obviously, Judas, the rest of the world doesn't love me. It's you guys who love me, the disciples. But I'm sure when Jesus said this, 
Judas was probably dumbfounded. He had no idea what Jesus was actually saying at this point. And Jesus' next response confirms just that. Listen to this, verses 25 and 26. Things, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus says, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, Judas, will teach you all things. Not only, but he will also bring to your remembrance, your memory, all that I've taught you, like the thing I just said now. Gift number four. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We have been given the Holy Spirit. If we've turned to Christ, again, in repentance and faith in him, we also have the Holy Spirit. The question is, how do we know if we have the Holy Spirit? And I would ask, do we love Christ? Because those who love Christ have the Holy Spirit. That's what he just told us. And we may be thinking, how do we know if we love Christ? Again, our passage tells us that those who love Christ will what? Keep, obey, hold on to Christ's commandments, right? He just told us that. And this doesn't mean that we are perfect or sinless. I mean, the gospel is the good news, right? As God takes sinful people like us and is working in us, on us, and through us. We call this continued sanctification. We are a work in progress. We are still being molded and shaped into the likeness of Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. As the battle between the flesh and the spirit will continue to rage on in our hearts, even as believers. I mean, we love God, but many times we show we love ourselves. We serve others, but many times we show that we serve ourselves. The, we, we say we fear God, but many times we show that we fear other people instead. This is the battle for the heart between the flesh and the spirit. The tug of war going on inside of our hearts. We want to live for God's glory, but we often live for our own glory. We see the same struggle with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. I'll just read a short portion of this. But Romans 7, verses 22 through 25 says this. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Do we see the apostles, Paul's battle with sin? Do we sense his frustration? Do we sense his angst? And at the same time, do we sense his passion for Christ? So we definitely will struggle with the flesh like the Apostle Paul. But the question is, are we growing in Christ? Are we moving forward in our faith in Christ Jesus? The longer we walk with Christ, the clearer we should see him. The longer we walk with Christ, the deeper my fellowship with him goes. And the closer we walk with Christ, the more we hate the very sin that we once loved. 
Well, I want to end by encouraging us this morning. Those of us who have turned to Christ Jesus, that one day, church, all the pain, all the struggle, all the strife, all the suffering will be done. And we will be face to face with our Lord and Savior for all eternity. We will live with him forever. Amen? So let's end by reading what Jesus says in John 14, 1 through 3. Church, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you also will be. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, how amazing, Father, that your Son has gone to prepare a place for us. Such love, such grace, such mercy, such patience you give to us. Wretched people that we are. Forgive us, Father, for our sinfulness. Help your spirit to mightily transform our hearts and in places where we still are fighting you, Father. Help us to grow in your holiness, to take our sins serious because we want to glorify you with our lives instead of rebel. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen.